You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Everybody was more concerned and felt accurately that it was more likely that their phone was going to get stolen and they were going to lose access to their Authenticator app than it was that their email was actually going to be remotely compromised. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's law and policy podcast. This episode is for September 2nd, 2020. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On this week's show, I review an essay from top U.S. officials on persistent engagement as a U.S. cyber doctrine. Ben describes the potential implications of a ruling on geofencing. And later in the show, my conversation with Sean Brooks. He's director of the Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity's Citizen Clinic program, and they have a recent report, Digital Safety Technical Assistance at Scale. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. All right, Ben, let's uh, dig into our stories this week. What do you have for us? Sure. So I have a new case from a magistrate court judge relating to geofencing. And you'd never guess uh, where I found this case. It's from our favorite man crush, Professor Oren Kerr uh, <laughs> from the University of California, Berkeley. So I will try not to fanboy too much as I read about this case. All right. So geofencing, as we know, is a law enforcement tactic. I mean, it can be used as a, a tactic for any private enterprise, but particularly in the context of a law enforcement tactic, it's trying to find all of the devices that were in a particular area at a particular time so that you can start to narrow down the devices and figure out who might be the suspect in a particular crime. So in this case, we're talking about a series of armed robberies that took place and law enforcement wanted to obtain from Google some geofencing information to figure out which devices might have been within the vicinities of these robberies. And this magistrate judge came up with what I think is the first actual opinion, legal opinion from a court, from a judge, related to geofencing in this country. Hmm. Obviously, it's one magistrate judge. This could change. This could be appealed. We could get different results in different jurisdictions. But as sort of the first bite of the apple, it's really interesting to see how the court came down on this question. 
Hmm. Well, take us through what uh, what did they come up with? So the holding of the case is that the geofencing warrants did not satisfy the Fourth Amendment's specificity and particularity requirements. So a couple of uh, important elements here. They started by analyzing this case in the context of the Carpenter case, which is about mm-hmm. uh, cell site location information, and basically dismissed that as an issue entirely, saying the parties didn't contest it. I actually don't think that that analysis was necessary or, or applicable in this case, but it, it is interesting that they cited back to Carpenter there. On the actual merits of the geofencing warrant, the court seems to treat, and this is in the words of Orrin Kerr, this warrant like a search of a person whose phone's presence is revealed. So there are basically two types of warrants you could obtain here. Let's imagine a non-geofencing situation. Just, you know, your standard, let's get into somebody's house warrant. There's a warrant to enter a place and see who's there. So see if a certain person was in a particular place at a particular time. Or there's a warrant to actually search an individual. So pick their pockets. What the court seems to be saying here is that geofencing more resembles that more intrusive search where you're rifling through the pockets and possessions of everybody who's in a particular area and not that first type of search where you're just entering a place and seeing who is there. Professor Kerr, and and I think I actually agree with him here, think that this warrant is more similar to that first type of inquiry where you're just seeing who is in a given location. You're not actually rifling through their pockets. The reason that makes sense to me is that they're not actually looking for any information on this person's device. All they want to know is whether the device was in a particular location at a particular time. And, you know, that would seem to satisfy the particularity requirement. What the court is saying is, if we're going to treat this like a warrant where we're actually searching every device within a a given area, you need to have some particularity. You need to have probable cause that every single device you're searching uh, is going to be relevant for your criminal investigation. That's going to be extremely difficult to obtain, especially if you don't have a lot of information on whom the devices belong to in the first place, of how many people were caught by this geofencing warrant. So if you don't have to use that more intrusive process where you're searching everybody's pocket, you only need probable cause that a given device might be in the location that the crime took place. That's a much lower probable cause standard. Professor Kerr seems to think that that should be the governing standard here. And and I think I agree with him. So let me ask you this. I mean, getting sort of continuing that comparison with a regular warrant to search someone's home, it it strikes me that it, it would be a useful comparison to say, there's a warrant for searching or entering a specific home, but then there's a warrant for going before a judge and saying, I want to go in every house in this neighborhood. I don't know which house might end up being the interesting one, but I need your permission to go in all of them. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting comparison. I think when you're talking about a warrant to go into people's houses, it's much more intrusive and much more like actually searching through people's stuff. When you're talking about something like this, where it's geofencing, I think you can draw a distinction because, like I said, you're not actually obtaining any personal information about anybody. You're just on this very narrow point. You're trying to see if an individual device was in a particular place at a particular time. And so I think you need not have probable cause to just perform this rather broad search of whether a single device was in a a particular area. Because if you had to have probable cause for each of the devices, then I think geofencing could potentially be ruled out as a law enforcement tactic. Mm. They're never going to be able to obtain probable cause for each of the devices in the area. Yeah. 
so I think, you know, if law enforcement wants to maintain geofencing as a valuable law enforcement technique, which I, I certainly think it is, then they're going to have to rely on other courts to interpret this differently and say that this is more of the equivalent of let's enter a place and see who's there. And at that point, you don't have to have probable cause for every person that's searched. Well, let, let me continue my comparison here. I guess what I'm wondering is, I can imagine someone going in front of a judge and saying, I want to search every house in the neighborhood. And the judge would say, no, you need to tell me which house you want to search. Right. But I can imagine for geofencing, it'd be one thing for law enforcement to say to Google or what, who, any of the service providers, hey, give us all the information on every device that's been in this area during this period of time. And they go in front of a judge and say, this is what we want. To me... That's different than going in front of a judge and saying, hey, listen, uh, we think that so-and-so, this, this particular individual was up to no good. We would like the service provider to tell us if this individual was, was in this area. This individual and only this individual was in this area at this given time based on geofencing information. Exactly. So I think that is the distinction here. Now, I should be clear one of the original warrants was, you know, they did have probable cause about this one person. Mm. And according to judicial precedents, there's a case called Ibarra v. Illinois. You can get a warrant about to search as to whether an individual was in a particular location at a particular time. That mm. is a permissible warrant, even if you don't have any more particularity beyond that. But you would need separate probable cause to search any person that was in that area. So what the court seems to be saying here is that this search is equivalent to searching every single person in this geofenced area. And what Professor Kerr is arguing, which I think he's arguing wisely, is it is more like that original warrant, which just allows a search of that place to determine whether that individual over which you already have probable cause is in that area, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that does make sense. So what, where do you think this goes next? I mean, what effect will this ruling have on things? So it is very limited to, you know, this one individual case and one individual circumstance simply because it's a magistrate judge. It has persuasive authority because it's the first of its case, most likely in the entire country. But I think we're going to see a split between courts on this. I think other courts will agree that the particularity requirement of the Fourth Amendment is satisfied. If you establish probable cause on one individual and you use geofencing to determine whether that individual was in that particular place at that particular time, that can satisfy the particularity requirement because you are not actually going in and obtaining personal information from all of the devices that are in that geofenced area. So yeah. I would predict that within the next year or so, you know, we're going to get a case where law enforcement use this geofencing as a, as a tactic and we're going to see a court come out on the other side. And I think it's up to legal scholars to try and figure out which argument is, is more persuasive, which conforms to our current understanding of Fourth Amendment jurisprudence. When you get these splits, you know, you start to see the academics get involved. They'll write law review articles. And then in turn, that starts to influence future judges. And when it gets to higher courts, they're going to rely on that scholarship. So I, I kind of imagine it like a, a long staircase to get to some sort of satisfying conclusion where we know full well whether geofencing is constitutional as a law enforcement tactic. And we're just on the first step of that long staircase. Hmm. I think there's just a lot of intellectual work on the part of both judges and 
legal scholars as to how this issue is going to be litigated going forward, especially as it gets into more prominent courts, federal district courts, courts of appeals, etc. So it's one of those things that we're just entering on the ground level here, and we're going to have to follow it very closely going forward. Do you find that that long staircase to be a, a, a frustrating feature of our system? It's extremely frustrating because we all want answers now. <laughs> right. And here's the thing, Dave. I yeah. mean, to a, to a non-legal person, what they want to know is, can law enforcement do this to me? They don't mm-hmm. care about jurisdiction, Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, different types of warrants, the particularity requirement. All of that is the province of nerdy academics like myself. <laughs> and it's very unsatisfying that we're not able to provide a solution here. And, you know, this isn't unique to this particular issue. All Fourth Amendment issues and really all constitutional issues go through this sort of evolution. You're presented with a novel circumstance. This is still a relatively new technology. And it takes a while to establish valuable precedent on what court should do when faced with this circumstance, especially if there are two competing interpretations that are persuasive to different judges. But yes, it's absolutely frustrating. It's frustrating Mm. that we can't give people an answer. And I wouldn't necessarily say a chilling effect, but it could start to have an impact on people's actions. You know, if they are reluctant to go into a specific location because of the threat of geofencing and not knowing whether you have adequate Fourth Amendment protection against that tactic, you know, could potentially change people's behavior in in somewhat disturbing ways. I mean, I of course, for the average person out there, it would be far more valuable to get some finality on this. But I just think we're we're not there yet. All right. Well, uh, (laughs) we will watch it play out, right? I mean, that's that's all we can do at this point. Maybe in three years, we'll have a nice, satisfying answer for everybody. (laughs) And we can we can look back on this first stair of the staircase. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, goody. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, interesting stuff for sure. My story this week comes from uh, Foreign Affairs, uh, and it's actually an essay written by General Paul Nakasone, who is the commander of U.S. Cyber Command. He's also the director of the NSA and chief of the Central Security Service, uh, also co-written by Michael Solmeyer, who's a senior advisor to the commander of U.S. Cyber Command. And it's titled, How to Compete in Cyberspace, Cyber Command's New Approach. It's an interesting essay, uh, also interesting to me, just the way that this is put out there, the process of, of putting this article out before the public. And this is really U.S. Cyber Command and the, the powers that be who are in charge of our nation's defense when it comes to cybersecurity, putting out there what their policies are going to be, what, how, how they're looking at this stuff. And it's, a, it's an interesting essay. Really, to me, what it comes down to is what they're saying is that the, this, um, I suppose, what is now an old-fashioned approach of being purely reactive, of having a you know, the, the old castle wall and moat and drawbridge. And when someone tries to do something to you in the cyber realm that you respond to it, that that no longer works anymore. Mm-hmm. And so they're using this policy of what they're calling defending forward. Now, Ben, defending forward. Sounds like a terrible euphemism. <laughs> I, was, I, I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for uh, General Nakasone, but I have to say that I just when I saw that, it struck me as a sort of classic military doublespeak. Like, what's yes? What's <laughs> what's the difference between defending forward and oh, I don't know, attacking? <laughs> yeah, it also kind of sounds like a bad political campaign uh, slogan. We're going to defend forward, where it doesn't right. actually mean anything, but it sounds like it's strong. 
strong and cool. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, they're actually on to something very interesting here. The right. National Security Agency and the United States Armed Forces are moving toward persistent engagement in cyberspace. And this mm. didn't come out of nowhere. In 2018, as part of the National Defense Authorization Act, Congress clarified that it gives the United States government statutory authority for military cyber operations to enable cyber command to conduct traditional military activities in addition to the more reactive activities that we were already undertaking. And after that law was passed, the White House, under President Trump, released its national cyber strategy, which sought to do much of the same thing that's outlined in this article, having a more persistent engagement in cyberspace, aligning our economic, diplomatic, intelligence, military efforts, a more holistic approach. So, you know, part of me thinks about why was this article released? And my instinct is it is a shot across the bow to our adversaries saying that we're taking cyber warfare very seriously. This is coming from the senior most official at U.S. Cyber Command that, you know, if you are going to attack us, we are not going to be reactive. We're going to take it to you, our adversaries, to you, our geopolitical enemies. And so I think that really, as much as the American people, you know, for their information, this is what your government is doing. It's for our adversaries to know that this is a new day in the world of international cyber conflict. Well, and and not coincidentally, I mean, peppered throughout this essay is the mention of elections, our own elections, other nations' elections. So I suppose not a very subtle hint uh, at what they're going at here in terms of our adversary, as you say, the shot across the bow. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think it reflects the reality that we're in this international global competition He, as the country who has the greatest power in cyberspace, is going to obtain economic and political advantage and is going to expand their sphere of influence. So, you know, doing things like, as they mentioned in this article, publicly releasing adversary malware obtained during hunt forward missions, that will make that malware less effective. And it also might make our adversaries think twice about whether to propagate an attack on our system. You know, I think it's sort of analogous to what you see in conventional warfare, where if you maintain a purely defensive posture, if we only had a national guard, you know, it might uh, please some of our libertarian friends out there. But, you know, it probably would not fulfill our overall long term goal of protecting the country from foreign threats. Oftentimes, you have to go out and engage whether that's diplomacy, whether that's going into countries and and nation building. I think the philosophy of our military, particularly after 9-11, was not to just sit back and take this defensive posture. And I think what this article is getting at and the 2018 statute and the president's executive order is we are taking those principles and applying them to cyberspace. Now, it's also interesting to me that it reflects something that we've seen, particularly from NSA, which is an increased level of engagement with the private sector, but also the public. They they mention uh, there's a new facility that they've spun up here, not far from us here near Fort Meade. It's called Dreamport. And it's a place that is an unclassified location where these folks at Cyber Command can collaborate with folks who aren't within that, you know, bubble of the security within NSA and Cyber Command itself. And that, to me, I mean, that's a real shift that we've seen from NSA as well. They've been really deliberate about their intentions, that they're going to have more engagement 
with folks outside of their community for the better of everyone, they say. Yeah, and I think that is a crucial part of this all-encompassing national cyber strategy. You know, one thing we have in this country is uh, an entrepreneurial spirit, a lot of big tech companies with the most valuable technological tools in the world. And it absolutely makes sense for us to leverage that expertise and develop relationships. Dreamport is a great example. I know uh, you've been there. I've been there. I mean, it's it's good to actually see that collaboration in practice. And, you know, I think it is all part of the same effort to elevate cyber conflict to its proper place. We now see, you know, based on our experiences over the past several years, whether it's been high profile ransomware attacks, phishing scams, election interference, that this can have real tangible impacts on our society the same way that traditional attacks have. And we need to start treating the threat like any other threat to our national security. And it's taken us a while, but I think we're finally starting to see government policy reflecting this strategy. All right. Well, we will have a link to the essay in the show notes. Uh, It's an interesting read. Certainly uh, gives you a good idea of the stated intentions of the the folks at at the national level who are defending us in the cyber realm. So uh, highly recommended. Worth your time. Absolutely. All right, Ben, it is time to move on to our listener on the line. Our listener on the line uh, wrote us an email here, and I will read it. It says, uh, question for the caveat podcast, and forgive me if this has been asked before, but your legalistic opinion, how legal are school device agreements if the parent doesn't have an option to decline the agreement, And how does Google Translate and Bing Translate factor into this? For example, if I have a parent that speaks Klingon. Who among us does not, right? (laughs) But nobody in the school district speaks that language or they don't have the time to do this. Uh, So there's a couple of interesting questions here. What do you make of this, Ben? Great questions. Generally, these device agreements are not only enforceable, but I think the uh, listener really gets to an important point that even if you as a parent can opt out in theory, you can't really opt out in practice. So the Electronic Frontier Foundation has done a lot of work on these device agreements, pointing out their potential flaws and the potential privacy concerns. And they got into this issue with opting out. Some school districts make it explicit that you can opt out if you don't want your child to be using one of these devices. Some schools don't really make it explicit. And in fact, when the Electronic Frontier Foundation has conducted opinion polling on this, many parents aren't aware that they even have the option uh, of opting out. So if you don't know about it, you you certainly won't be able to do it. And then even if you do know about it, I mean, opting out can just be an incredible hassle. You can opt out, but then, you know, your child is not going to be at the same level as the other students who are using these technological tools. And the schools themselves, you know, aren't going to be in a hurry to provide you alternative means of learning. we've, We've read about in some cases where parents have tried to opt out, but when the kid goes to school, they have teachers setting up new iCloud accounts for the students. Um, And, you know, not knowing that the parent refused to sign that permission slip. Well, I also wonder about the social implications, too. I mean, I I don't know if this you probably had a similar experience. I know for many of us, you know, when it came time every year, I don't know, late in elementary school and middle school, when it came time for family life. You know, where they, they they teach you all about, uh, you know, the, the, the plumbing uh, of the boys and girls. Yes. Um, you know, there was always one or two kids whose parents for usually, re- you know, religious reasons or, or whatever opted out. 
and this is decided this was something they were more comfortable handling at home. Yeah, let's just well, say the other kids noticed, right? Right, right. Yeah. Those kids, this did not go uncommented on by the other children, you know. So I think that's a very real thing as well. It absolutely is. And there is a class-based and, you know, demographic-based uh, angle to this as well. If you don't have parents at home that are technologically savvy or would know how to operate this device, you know, you can't expect a first grader to know how a laptop computer works. You're going to need to have semi-computer literate parents uh, to actually allow that student to do the work. And when you are relying on technology for learning, particularly in this time where we are only relying on technology for learning in most uh, jurisdictions across the country, then that can exacerbate existing inequality in our uh, school districts. And that's where that language issue comes up uh, right. from our, our questioner. The school might say, you speak this particular language at home. We have one tool to offer you, and that's Google Translate, Bing Translate. Mm-hmm. Um, but here are all the privacy concerns. You know, you've done your research. You see the privacy concerns of using those tools. You can either opt in and subject yourself to those privacy risks, or you can opt out and your kid's not going to understand what's going on in the classroom. Uh, And that's really a a terrible choice. So I think, you know, if you're looking for an action item here, it's to go to your local school board and try and make opting out a more realistic possibility. Force the the, uh, administration of your school districts to develop reasonable alternatives so that, you know, you're not giving parents this awful choice of excluding their kids from the learning process or potentially uh, exposing your children to the dangers of privacy, all types of threats that exist when we log on to our devices. Yeah. Uh, so this is just a great question, and uh, I'm very glad our listener asked it. Yeah, thanks so much uh, for sending that in. We would love to hear from you. We have a call-in number. It's 410-618-3720. You can call in and leave a message there. We might use it on the show. You can also send us an email right to caveat at thecyberwire.com. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership, while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Uh, Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Sean Brooks. He's director of the Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity Citizen Clinic. That is over at Berkeley. Uh, And they recently published a report titled Digital Safety Technical Assistance at Scale. Interesting conversation here with Sean Brooks. The Citizen Clinic program has been running for about three years at UC Berkeley. The program was modeled after clinical programs in 
the law and medical fields where the model provides an experiential learning opportunity for students. So if you ask any attorney, right, they'll probably tell you that law school doesn't teach you what it's like to actually go out and be a lawyer in the world. Hmm. That doesn't mean that it doesn't prepare you intellectually for the work. Uh, It doesn't teach you a lot about the foundations of law, but in terms of actually practicing law, it's a very different experience. And so what a clinic model allows is for students to get an actual taste of what it's like to do work in the field in a space that allows them to learn and make mistakes and get guidance from, you know, experienced professionals. In at the same time, clinical models in both the medical and the legal fields have enabled academic institutions to provide these high-cost, high-expertise services for populations and communities that wouldn't otherwise have access to those services. And so if you look at public interest law clinics, you'll see that they're focused on things like death penalty cases or environmental law or immigration law. This allows the students to do public interest work, to serve populations who are in need of legal assistance but wouldn't otherwise be able to afford it, uh, and generally benefits the sector as a whole. The creation of again, particularly law clinics, helped create the entire field of public interest law. And when we were looking at the cybersecurity field and the sort of digital safety issues that nonprofits and journalists, human rights defenders, uh, and other activist organizations were facing, we saw sort of a similar challenge where there's a high-cost, high-sophistication cybersecurity workforce and set of companies, startups, government agencies, uh, you name it. But there's not much catering towards high-risk organizations, particularly those being targeted by politically motivated actors. And there's not an opportunity for students to understand that there's a workforce opportunity there other than, you know, if you, if you want to go into cybersecurity work, most of the traditional career paths are into defense or intelligence or into the private sector. And the idea that there isn't really a public interest career track for folks interested, even though there's a huge amount of need. So by creating the clinic, we hope to create a model by which more students can understand the breadth of the need of these types of projects in the field and understand that there's a lot of different ways and a lot of different types of expertise to get into the cybersecurity space. Uh, So for that reason, we take on students from not just computer science programs, but law, public policy, journalism. We had a history student last semester. We've had students from psychology, the School of Information. And in the last three years, we've worked with 10 different organizations uh, on, I think, four different continents, working on issues as diverse as reproductive rights, indigenous land rights, journalism, and the public interest, international development accountability efforts, war crimes reporting, a huge diversity of organizations. And our students have been able to work together on interdisciplinary teams to both understand the broader context in which these organizations sit and understand how that context informs their threat model and then propose mitigations to those threats and actually implement some technical and policy solutions to some of those problems to get the actual experience of what it's like to do the work of cybersecurity and digital safety. Now, what sort of lessons have you learned along the way? You know, I can imagine spinning up something like this. You certainly had things in mind, but of course, everything's not exactly the way you plan it when you actually go out there and, and start engaging with the folks out there? Were there any, any things uh, that were unexpected that you had to make adjustments along the way? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we started small, right? We started with a pilot with four graduate students, one of whom actually ended up graduating from the School of Information and becoming the deputy director here at Citizen Clinic. And we started first working with a digital rights organization in Latin America. And in that first experiment, we knew that sort of understanding the organization's culture, the broader context of their their work, particularly their the political activism, was going to be really important in understanding what types of technical mitigations would be necessary and what sort of solutions they could adopt. But we didn't, I don't think we even embraced that mentality far enough initially. So for example, working with that client organization, one of the things that we wanted to do was get them set up with multi-factor authentication on all of their critical accounts, right? Hmm. Really simple mechanism by which we could really improve the authentication security of that organization across the board. So we determined for what the three most critical accounts were for everybody in that organization. We ran a series of very sort of intimate workshops where we had the employees go through the process of setting up app-based MFA for themselves uh, on all these accounts, really walked them through and made sure they understood how it worked, made sure they understood backup codes and some of the challenges of preserving those. Uh, and we felt pretty positive that by the end of the, the experience, we'd gotten everybody on in the organization set up with MFA for their work email and social media accounts and some personal accounts as well. So we were feeling really good about that. We work with most of our clients for not just one semester, but usually about a year and a half on average. Mm. Um, so about six months later, we were able to come back and say, hey, you know, we, we implemented this. Uh, we also helped you get set up on, on a cloud-based email provider. So let's go back and check and make sure that everybody's MFA is still turned on. When we went back and looked, only 30% of the organization still had MFA turned on. Wow. And we were like, well, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> what did we do? What, what, what went wrong? And what turned out, what, what it turned out is that the, uh, the city in which this organization was based has a high amount of cell phone theft. And so what we didn't anticipate when we recommended, okay, everybody get this authenticator app and use this for your email security, was that everybody was more concerned and felt accurately that it was more likely that their phone was going to get stolen and they were going to lose access to their authenticator app than it was that their email was actually going to be remotely compromised. Uh, And so in that moment by, you know, despite the fact that we've done all this work looking at the context of the organization, we missed this really, really simple component of what day-to-day life was like for our client organization. And so that really helped us double down on that and the importance of that. And that has become, I think, one of the linchpins of our educational pedagogy is really helping our students understand how context informs the threat profile of our partner organizations much more than their their technical infrastructure, even in many cases, the capabilities of their adversary. Because when it really comes down to it, the threat profiles of a lot of the organizations from a technical perspective that we work with are very much the same because they don't have complex technical infrastructure, right? They've got an email account. They've probably got some storage needs. There's probably some social media presence. But the technical infrastructure of a lot of these organizations, regardless of whether they have 100 people in them or five people in them, because they're sort of agile nonprofits, tends to look very similar. But the context and the way that they do the work informs the ways in which they're going to be attacked, both because the attackers aren't really necessarily looking to get things like money out of it, right? They're looking to forward political ends. And they don't necessarily need to use the full 
complement of their capabilities in order to compromise these organizations. And so one of our, our friends at, at Citizen Lab up at the University of Toronto once called our work, and, and, and I think he was trying to be positive about it. He said, this is the boring work of cybersecurity. But in many ways, it's a really great experience for our students where it's like, look, we talk in the abstract about things like multi-factor authentication or setting up HTTPS or setting up things like DMARC as relatively simple or straightforward cybersecurity controls. But when the rubber beats the road, this stuff is actually a lot harder than you think it is. And so mm-hmm. if we want to make meaningful progress, particularly for low-resource organizations with no technical staff, there's still a lot of work to do to make these types of controls more user-friendly, more accessible, and generally more adopted. Well, you also recently published a report titled Digital Safety Technical Assistance at Scale. Um, Can you take us through that? First of all, what prompted the creation of the report? So one of the things that we were looking at over the last few years is how do we grow our own clinic? And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we started with four students and one client organization. Uh, Now, on an average semester, we have something like 16 to 2025 students. And we work with five or six organizations a semester, depending on how many students we have. That's a big increase. And that's great. You know, law clinics have sort of similar sizes. Some are smaller, some are much larger. But the reality is, is one public interest cybersecurity clinic at UC Berkeley is not going to solve the world of problems facing civil society, particularly not in this time in the world when we see rising authoritarianism, clampdowns on media and civil society organizations. There is a lot more need than there is expertise available. And so if we really think clinical model is a good contributor to resolving these problems, we have to think a little bit more about the big picture of how do we get this expertise into the hands of activist organizations uh, and those who need it. And so the paper was informed by what we've learned in the last three years at the clinic about the challenges of bringing this work to scale and what we think some of the opportunities out there in the broader ecosystem look like. Because in our mind, It's not just one clinic or even many clinics, but it's going to be a mix of contributors from the private sector, from government, from academia, from activist organizations, where currently the vast majority of technical assistance for for civil society comes from is from small nonprofits themselves, organizations like Access Now or the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Tactical Tech or Internews. These are organizations that, while well-established, you know, are still fairly lean operations, and they're the main technical assistance providers out there in the world today. And so if we need, you know, we need to sort of raise the number of bodies working on this issue, but we also need to raise the level of sophistication in which this ecosystem works and collaborates with other contributors, as I mentioned, from other sectors as well. So we started with this question of how is this supposed to get bigger? How are we supposed to make more helpers in this field? And one of the things we realized very quickly was we weren't entirely sure what exactly was supposed to get bigger. We knew that we needed more people, but were we trying to grow what exactly? Are we trying to grow the capacity of NGOs to take care of these issues themselves? Are we trying to make it easier for them to find help? And so what the report talks about is what are sort of the components of scale that we want to emphasize as the technical assistance ecosystem grows and matures? What are some of the things 
that need to be improved in existing practitioners? And what are some of the emergent models that we have seen in the last three years that might give us a sense of how do you do this work bigger and better? So we talked about three models that we've seen uh, emerge, specifically our clinical model. Uh, We've also seen volunteer models where organizations are getting together as sort of hubs for particularly members of the private sector who are interested in using their skills for for good, where so organizations like I Am the Calvary, um, where they get together a large group of volunteers and try to matchmake those volunteers, particularly in the example of I Am the Calvary, they're matchmaking those volunteers with organizations in the medical device or the airline industry or the auto industry, where there's not enough experts to deal with the large amount of technical systems going into these very critical machines and technologies and helping them harden those systems out the gate uh, to make sure that they're not going to people's bodies or on the roads or into the sky in an insecure fashion. (laughs) There's another model that we've seen, which is also really encouraging and exciting, which is sort of this community hub model where Hmm. a couple of cybersecurity practitioners will create a hub for technical assistance directly focused on a specific community of need or on a specific advocacy sector. And we've seen this happen for reproductive rights. We've seen this happen for survivors of intimate partner violence. And these kind of community hub models can be focused on geographic areas, again, or specific sectors of of advocacy or activism or specific issues. But what that community hub model allows is for that organization to become super embedded within that community and culture. And so all of that contextual awareness that I was talking about earlier, that becomes secondhand because they live and breathe Mm -hmm. it all the time. And they become sort of the center of excellence for that community. And they can do matchmaking. Uh, We've done a lot of work with a couple of sort of community hub organizations at the clinic where we now have a trusted relationship with that hub. And so as they come across organizations who might be a good fit for the clinic, whether it's, you know, they need help on a longer term basis or that the the urgency of their needs is better addressed over time. Much of the work that we do is, you know, on the semester schedule, right? So we're not necessarily an emergency response organization. And so Hmm. those community hubs can help funnel members of their community to organizations like ours or others, uh, depending on their needs and provide technical assistance for those who don't necessarily have a a good fit in the sort of broader ecosystem. And so through these three models, all of these things have, you know, these models have different places where they're more capable. And so what we tried to chart out in this paper was what kind of model fits what type of component of scale. And so the audience for the paper is uh, folks who want to contribute to this space. So if you're a philanthropy, for example, a lot of philanthropic organizations are coming to understand that, you know, every program needs some sort of capacity building in this space. So if you're looking to get something started up because you're funding in the environmental space or in a space that is generally not paid a lot of attention to digital safety issues in the past, and you're trying to figure out what the models are, hopefully this paper can help you understand, based on the problems that you've observed, what kind of technical assistance model might help the community of interest you're looking to support. All right, Ben, what do you make of that? I think it is a very cool project that they're undertaking at Berkeley to try and bring this important service 
cyber knowledge to members of the community that might not be able to get it. And not to mention my own institution, but I would encourage <laughs> to toot your own horn. <laughs> right. I would actually encourage all universities. You know, he talked about that this is a multidisciplinary effort. I think particularly in the legal world, it's incumbent upon law schools to have cybersecurity clinics because you're going to have victims of cyber crimes who don't know what their rights are, don't know what their obligations are. And, you know, sometimes in other legal realms, often the cheapest, most effective legal resource is going to be these law school clinics. And this is something that's being offered not through the law school at Berkeley, but from an interdisciplinary level. And I think it's a very valuable tool. Um, and I'm glad that that he's introduced it. Yeah. Well, our thanks to uh, Sean Brooks for taking the time for us. A little note uh, I saw just uh, this past few days uh, that Sean announced on his Twitter feed that he is actually moving on from the Center for Long-Term Cybersecurity Citizen Clinic. He's going to Facebook. He's going to be working on some stuff there. So uh, congratulations to him. It seems like he's pretty excited about the possibilities there to contribute to uh, some of the things that Facebook is working on. So Again, our thanks to him for joining us. And that is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and Zero Trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producers are Kelsey Bond and Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening.